The ambitious distances the three forays proposed would require waves of dogs and citrons depot the 81,000 pounds of stores required to carry forward the operations and sustain the people and dogs making the outermost extensions. But the old hands from the previous expedition and the hands newly experienced after the Misery Trail and the advanced base trek carried enough insight to make the planning a straightforward matter of mathematics and quartermastery. The only shortfall identified remained fuel for the citrons, noted by Poulter and exacerbated by June's scuttlebutt. Noville solved the shortage with a three-way trade. Surplus high-octane fuel in the aviation department couldn't serve the half-tracks, but would run the Kohler power plant for the radio department if mixed two to one with kerosene. The radio department had surplus gasoline that would run the citrons, but ran low on rations. Noville played Milo Minderbinder and got the exchanges sorted. The mechanised transport suddenly held half as much fuel again as before the swap. To ensure the Kohler's sustained running under the straightened circumstances, weight went through the base, dead-ending light circuits in areas that didn't see much use and replacing most bulbs with 10 watt units, providing just enough light to really define the darkness. The 1000 watt unit in the mover projector went out in favour of a 400 watt replacement, dimming the entertainment but never diminishing enthusiasm for the films, some of them on their fourth and fifth showing late in the winter darkness. All up, nice work Noville. Adding to weights problems, the spark plugs for the colas lay buried, unmapped, somewhere in a mountain of unsorted gear, and those at work in the generators late in the season were pretty sorely worn out. The aviators, the demands placed on their engines making top-notch performance a matter of life and death, knew where their spark plug cache lay and kept weight supplied with their cast-offs as the engineers replaced them according to the preventative maintenance schedule. Plywood, snow goggles and windproof cloth came to the fore as the next most desperately short trail fixtures and the trail leaders levered as much of the first two out of the Little American service as they could. On the sartorial front, those working the trail could expect a full suit of new clothing, hot off Miller's sewing machines, immediately prior to departure, while those denizens slated to stay put at the base resigned themselves to a spring season collection of patches on their existing duds. In spite of lots of data arising from the previous expedition, the stores yielded insufficient fats to make up the prescribed sledging, motor transport and aviation rations. Noville put Carbone to task, saving every skerrick of fats and oils he could. The drunken misanthrope demonstrated he could come to the aid of the party when really needed, scrupulously accumulating the necessary lipids after every roast, while the rest of the camp reduced their bacon intake to one serving per week to ensure the trail parties would get the porcine fats the rigours of Antarctic outdoor living required. Payne and Russell spent weeks in the dark darkness of Dogtown butchering seals and rendering blubber to make up dog pemmican. They used blubber to fuel the stove on which they rendered more blubber, the resulting smitch making the task even grottier and less appealing than it already was. But base fuel shortages made this economy a necessity. <coughs> to ease the workload on the trail, the motorised teams tore down the Citroen's canvas-covered canopies and erected plywood huts on the cargo decks. With most of the load distributed on sledges, they could afford to turn their vehicles into mobile camps, negating the need for tents 
other than as emergency shelters. The plywood shortage forced the use of canvas for roofing, but this still represented an improvement over the arrangements of the first season out on the barrier. Rawson ran classes on navigation. Waite ran classes on radio theory and practice. Innes Taylor taught sledging craft. An initial open invitation to join the school drew many enthusiastic students whenever the weather turned foul, and soon the only attendees welcome in class were those likely to use the new knowledge in service of the three spring field parties. Between Noville's Milo Minderbinder impersonation and camp economies, the spring sledges looked well sorted to succeed. It's a pity Bird threw his carbon monoxide poisoned spanner in the works, but more of that in a moment. Through the winter dark, the science program chugged along. Magnetic observations, cosmic ray measurements, counts and tracks of meteors that Poulter made arrangements to integrate with concurrent observations at other stations around the southern hemisphere, and Perkins making marine biological samples whenever the weather and the thickening bay ice yielded an opportunity. Seipel took his Marie Birdland party on a midwinter sledge journey to Floyd Bennett Bay to shake down their trail technique. Too cold for dogs at that time of year, the foursome manhauled their sledges with all the attendant misery that goes with that transport mode at that time of year. Wade experienced bad frostbite on his face and it was only a brisk return to base and the immediate attention of Dr Pataka as prevented permanent scarring. By mid-June, Bird's thrice-weekly radio contacts carried worrying anomalies. While Dyer could transmit voice over the airwaves, the equipment at Bolling Advance Base limited Bird to replying in Morse, and being an officer, and therefore crap at most practical aspects of his calling, Bird only sent at a rate of about 10 words a minute. Over time, this rate decreased, and information in the slowing words became less coherent. Bird clearly knew the danger he faced, as he twice asked for recommendations on how to combat carbon monoxide in his hut, but no practical advice arose, because the only way to ensure no carbon monoxide accumulated in the hut required the fires go out and the hatch and ventilators remain open, both strategies constituting a death sentence of their own. Poulter's concerns about Bird's health found a mirror in Charlie Murphy's concerns about expedition finances. The contracts with CBS and General Foods came up for renewal on the 20th of June. Any hint that things on the ice weren't just tickety-boo might nix the deals and leave the expeditioners promised a paycheck for their efforts hanging in the Antarctic breeze. Efforts to keep a lid on the crisis failed though, so Murphy had to quickly change tack and try to make mileage from the situation as it actually stood. More on this in a moment. Poulter began transmitting Bird a proposal for a winter traverse using the Citrons to carry his meteor observations further south while the winter sky remained dark enough to supply meaningful data. Wary of too eagerly countermanding his earlier order that under no circumstances should anyone risk their neck in a midwinter rescue party, Bird responded that Poulter should only attempt this scientific endeavour if absolutely certain that the modifications to the half-tracks ensured their reliability in winter conditions. He might even return to Little America a little earlier than previously planned if the Citrons performed sufficiently well. The outside world pieced together enough information from the transmissions from and to Little America that Murphy, his hand forced, 
tried to play the story of a rescue mission heading into the Antarctic winter darkness as the news event of the century, but I don't think he stuck the landing. Poulter also came unstuck, keeping the developing bad news from the south to the small executive team and the radio operators for three weeks. Secrecy is a path to inevitable failure. In spite of Murphy's injunction that private radio should be turned off during dialogue between Little America and Advance Base, Boyd and others listened in. The resulting scuttlebutt about Bird passed around the base like a flu virus, working to further undermine Poulter's tenuous hold on leadership at Little America too. On the 26th of June, Poulter, Damas, Skinner and Waite headed out on a test run following the flagged route out beyond retreat camp and onto the Amundsen arm of the Bay of Wales. Encouraged by the Citroen performance, they made plans to depart for advanced base in mid-July. Bird gave tentative approval of the departure on the proviso that the weather proved propitious. Sly grogging gradually became overt grogging and the personal supplies showed no signs of drying up in the manner Poulter hoped they might. Attempting, badly, to assert authority, Poulter posted standing orders on the 30th of June to the effect that anyone observed drinking other than on Dr Pataka's orders would be dropped from their role in the spring field parties. Poulter, already unpopular for hiding the whisky, received a lot of derision for this ultimatum, Al Lindsay appending lips that touch hooch shall never touch hoosh to the standing orders. On the 5th of July, Bird failed to respond to the scheduled hail from Little America. On the 6th, he did respond to the emergency schedule message, but Dyer noted that the response came from the hand-cranked radio set rather than the electrical unit, the difference in sound informing the insight. Bird tapped out that a bearing sheared off the genset used to run the larger radio, forcing him onto the backup trail unit. Bird's diary notes that the effort of cranking the unit knocked him on his already monoxidally weakened ass, and Little America didn't hear from him again until the 15th of July. Poulter responded to Bird's faint message that he anticipated starting on the trail south in four days, and Bird replied that he would keep a beacon light burning on the surface from the 20th onwards. The sledges reached the surface in a hole punched through the roof of their tunnel, and the Citroen crawled out of its subsurface garage. Poulter made a searchlight from the 1,000-watt projector bulb, using an aluminium wind guard from a Primus stove set as a reflector, and powering it from the same portable genset weight used to run the trail radio to maintain constant contact with Little America. June headed up a faction opposed to the rescue traverse. Joined by Innes Taylor, Rawson, Damas and Noville, the executive deputation published a three-page report condemning the project with an intention of sending it to advance base so Admiral Byrd could consider their objections. Besides risking the lives of the men making the trek, the operation stood to cost the expedition fuel and possibly one of the extremely valuable citrons, thereby jeopardising the overall goals of the expedition in order to make a journey that Byrd already prescribed. It was a game gambit to push Bird to own the entirety of any decision to send a half-track south to his relief. If, as everyone suspected, Bird was going to die if not rescued, and he knew it, he would be forced to give the orders to come to his aid, countermanding his earlier directive. June's gambit likely would have worked, but that Poulter never read it to the Admiral over the radio. 
Poulter's decision to go ahead on the pretense of a meteor observation foray with Bird's non-committal permission gave the Admiral deniability if anyone ever accused him of putting his own welfare ahead of those under his command, which is exactly what he did, tacitly, if not explicitly. Poulter called a meeting of the executive at which June requested he be absolved of any responsibility for outcomes arriving from the winter journey, starting out in the face of his objections. Murphy proposed the motion, Black seconded, and the executive passed it unanimously. In covering his butt in this manner, June also discarded any control he might have wielded, and it fell to Innes, Taylor and Morgan to petition Poulter to call another meeting of the executive at which individual positions on the journey might be canvassed. Poulter declined, and with Murphy backing him, no one else held the authority to call the meeting that might have seen the trip nixed. June still managed to niggle enough to get the whole executive in the science lab for a final vote on the matter, entirely outside the command structure Bird established, but impossible for Poulter to veto due to the weight of numbers and the power of feeling. The event was more a shouting match than a debate, and attempts to word a motion fell apart, potential seconders deciding not to put their name to Bird's death sentence whenever the process came close to an actual vote. The only motion passed that night was the one that the meeting should adjourn. Murphy primed his New York Times contacts on how to couch their copy when the journey began, and that they should kill the story immediately on anything going wrong, though I doubt he had the clout to make anyone hold to that if the story of the year actually was playing out under their noses and on their dollar. On the 20th of July, with Skinner at the wheel and Poulter on the bonnet, playing the searchlight back and forth to pick up the trail flags, and banging on the cab once for turn left and twice for turn right, and Waite, Peterson and Fleming sprawling atop the gear on the cargo deck, Citroen No. 1 departed Little America, leaving Haynes in charge with Murphy as his second. Waite called in their progress on the hour, and Innes Taylor kept track of same on a rough map drawn on the mess hall blackboard. The flags, barely showing above the Sestrugi surface, took a lot of finding, and the party covered 25 miles to make good 11 miles progress toward advanced base. Men took turns on the bonnet, in the cab and on skis, widening the search for flags as they progressed south. By the end of the second day, the odometer showed 170 miles covered to make good 60 miles of progress, but with the trail lost entirely, the Citroen backtracked to the 50 mile depot. Waite broadcast that due to the danger of working the crevasse fields off trail in the dark, the Citroen was returning to Little America. The lack of response from the south told them nothing about what Bert heard or didn't hear. A blizzard saw the carburetta fill with drift snow and the Citroen stalled out about 28 miles south of base. Poulter's team dug themselves out cleared the mechanical problems up and covered the final leg home on the 23rd of July. Bird, unable to crank the radio set to life, in the interim, recommenced broadcasts on the 2nd of August. Where is Tractor? I have heard nothing for days. Over and over again, and it fell to dire to give him the news that the Citroen remained no closer to advanced base than before it headed south. Pairing the party down to himself, Damas and wait. Poulter departed in Citroen No. 1 once more on the 4th of August, just as the first hint of the first sunrise showed on the horizon. 
The blizzard that recently stalled them on their way home obliterated all traces of flags and a near miss in a crevasse caused a long delay to bring the trailing sledge back to the surface. On the 6th of August, 21 miles south, the Citroen's clutch began slipping. Poulter depoted the sledges and turned the party north to swap the vehicle out, ordering Haynes to have Citroen number 3 on the surface and warmed up. The clutch issues forced Damas to remain in second gear, and a low spike in temperature saw the engine's belts turn brittle and snap. Poulter and Waite frantically fabricated replacements using lengths of their alpine rope, but these served only tens of minutes each before stretching beyond offering any friction over the wheels turning under them. The overheating engine boiled away its antifreeze, and the trio covered the final miles, constantly stuffing snow into the radiator filler pipe, arriving back at Little America in the small hours of the 7th. With the third Citroen still not fitted out with headlights and instruments after its cab fire on the Misery Trail, and number two still stripped down, Damas called that a spare clutch unit be brought up and fitted to number one. Boyd got on the case, but soon realised the spare unit wasn't really a spare unit, being a different size to that installed in the Citroens. Instead, the headlights and instruments of number two shifted to number three. The trio departed again in the small hours of the 8th, arriving back an hour later with a fucked oil pump. Boyd swapped this out double time and the trio departed for the fourth time, picking up the depot sledges at 7.45. A gargantuan effort of noble bloody-mindedness. Definitely something to tell the grandkids about. By this point, Bird's calls from advanced base constituted maydays, but for not featuring that word repeated three times at their opening. Everyone at Little America already knew Bird was barely surviving, but now he was acknowledging his plight, with messages reading, Come at once. For three days, Poulter and co. pressed southward, fixing whatever broke down with whatever came to hand. The generator gave out, and the brushes of the spare unit kept falling out of their rotor. The two men not steering whittled tiny wooden holdfasts to keep the brushes in place for a few dozens of minutes at a time before they needed replacing. The trail flags came to light and the wreck of the clear track showed in the searchlight, but at 81 miles out the Citroen lost all radio contact. Pressing on in the darkness with Poulter on the roof, a magnesium flare showed on the horizon. Two hours crawling forward and a blinking light showed and then the searchlight picked out Admiral Byrd, gaunt, haggard, clad in furs and waiting for them at the entrance to advance base. Come on down, fellows. I have a bowl of hot soup for you. Byrd's account recounts his greeting. Wait got a message out to Little America. Confidential. Found him weak from fumes. Minutes later, Poulter sent via the hand-cranked unit the fumes from the stove got R.E.B. down about June 1st. Please don't publish, as it would be hard on his wife. Pretty weak now, but I think he will pull through. I'm in Whalers Bay, Deception Island, late November 2019. Sitting in amongst the old digesters. Meltwater trickling by my feet. Terns nesting. A few penguins on the beach. Fur seals kicking around. It's quite warm. 
besides the geothermal activity, I think the the albedo of the the volcanic sand beach throwing a fair bit of heat at us. Also not widely published was that the trio found the emaciated bird, 50 pounds lighter than when starting his meteorological folly, was living in squalor. Half-finished tins of food and piles of frozen vomit littered the floor of the tiny hut. Barely able to cook and feed himself after a lifetime of attentive servants seeing to his needs, and barely able to hold down anything due to the poisoning, Bird's culinary efforts mark a low point of Antarctic cuisine, exceeded only by the inexpressible island troglodytes and the waterboat residents at Waterboat Point. The sun returned to Little America on the 21st of August. On the 29th, the autogyro resurfaced, providing the first full-strength surface gathering of base denizens since shortly before the final April sunset. Ragged clothes, sallow, smitch-caked skin and big beards characterised the fashion that season. On September 1st, Schlossbach made the first steps towards excavating the Ford Trimotor, a long and unpleasant campaign that succeeded off the back of hard yards put in by many winter-weekend volunteers. McCormick got his autogyro airborne that afternoon for the first of nine height-stratified meteorological flights over the month. All hands grasped snow shovels to begin digging out the Curtis Condor, another epic effort and one that took precedence over all other tasks for the time it took to get the biplane surfaced on the 22nd. The fabric skin of the airframe received over 40 rents from snow shovels in the process. Harold June kicked off the trail season on the 27th, heading for Mount Grace McKinley in Citroen No. 1 to establish depots in support of Paul Seipel's Marie Birdland sledging contingent. Rawson, acting as June's navigator, dispensed with time-costly stops to step clear of the ferrous influence of the caravan and set its course by magnetic compass by mounting an aperiodic compass on the last sledge. Ensuring this sledge carried no iron or tin, prevented magnetic deviation in the instrument, and the aperiodicity made it easier to read among the yaw, pitch and roll of the sledge as it passed over the sestrugi, offering an accurate picture of the sledge's course in overcast weather or blizzards when the sun compass couldn't help. This on its own didn't solve the poor weather navigational puzzle, so they mounted an unlucky punter next to the compass to read it and gave them a set of copper-based switches they could use to light up a simple system of helm indicators in the Citroen's cabin. The navigator used these to impart course corrections to the driver and the system became the standard fit in the half-tracks when traversing unflagged terrain. On the 28th, while a party worked to free the Fairchild Pilgrim, McCormick took off for the 10th flight in the meteorological series but snow had accumulated in the tail section of the aircraft and went unnoticed during the pre-flight checks, and this threw the machine so wildly out of trim that it wasn't far above the ground when McCormick lost control. The machine slid tail first into the ground from a height of 75 feet, the rotor disintegrating and the fuselage balling up around its occupant. When those nearest arrived at the wreckage, McCormick lay unconscious, pinned under the machine by a broken arm. McCormick scored a second first, the first rotary wing crash in Antarctica. His compatriots carried McCormick on a sledge and broke a hole in the tunnel roof so they could lower him horizontally into Little America's infirmary, this time comprising Admiral Byrd's bunk in the library. Dr Pataka set the arm in a splint and Boyd rigged a traction pulley to keep it straight. The accident laid McCormick up for a month and a half, but it could have been a lot worse. And pre-flight your aircraft completely, people. 
Bird's Discovery notes that, quote, with the ship out of trim, the crash was inevitable, unquote, but doesn't comment on the inevitability of the ship falling that far out of trim by act of special creation, which is the unwritten assumption behind the inevitability of McCormick's crash. The same day, Dogtown cleared out, handlers bringing their charges up the hatches one at a time and keeping them under control while the animals blinked in the unaccustomed light of an open sky. All but the lame, the pregnant, the newborn and the dying spent the remainder of their time in Antarctica on the surface, and much of that time they spent in harness. Many fights broke out as the stronger dogs pulled their new and untried stakes, but soon exhausted their out of fettle selves, keeping the blood on the snow to a minimum. Schlossbach's snow shovel team brought the Fairchild Razorback to the surface after its icy five-year sojourn, and while the weight of snow had bent the wing struts, the engineer figured he could get the machine airborne again. On the 1st of October, Bird, two months into his recovery, requested the Fairchild Pilgrim head to advance base to collect his recovering self. Test flown on the 2nd, poor weather kept the Pilgrim grounded until the 12th, at which point Boland flew south with Schlossbach navigating and Bailey on the radio. The Pilgrim returned with Bird and Poulter, Schlossbach staying on in the south to help Damas shut down Bowling Advance Base. Bird wrote of his return to Little America as a return to life, but not as a homecoming. So much of the layout of Little America changed in his absence, he needed assistance finding his berth for several days until the new buildings and tunnels became familiar. He doesn't mention at all that Little America was a squalid warren of booze-riddled troglodytes, but he did tend to gloss over the nasty stuff. Haynes began serious drinking a week before Bird arrived, ordering Pelter bring him whiskey from the Polter stash. Being in command in Poulter's absence and a veteran of Bird's previous expedition, Haynes' example gave tacit licence to every other drunkard, and Poulter's attempt to enforce Bird's dry base mandate fell apart completely. Dr. Patakas still worked hard at making the excavated lung preserver palatable, and while the resulting brew did cause the desired stupor, the nasty hangover it caused, frayed already well toasty tempers. A dead husky, propped up in the snow, received a sign around its neck. I died for bird, why didn't you? Finn Ronnie stood apart. Disgusted by Bird's shitty leadership, Poulter's inept leadership, June's seditious manipulations, and the overall underground alcoholism, he kept largely to himself in Blubberheim and dreamed of what a really well-run, disciplined Antarctic expedition might look like. The returning sun prevented Little America going the full Lord of the Flies. Getting some exercise topside and feeling useful turned around even Stuart Payne's maudlin outlook, his diary musings focusing more on the looming sledge journey on which he would navigate than on the flaws and shortcomings of his fellows for a change. Noville, Skinner and Hill headed for advance base in Citroen No. 2 on the 6th of October, carting 3,000 pounds of stores to support the southern sledging parties slated to pass that way. Lessons learnt about the attempted early sledging starts in the previous expedition informed the spring field schedule. Seipel, Wade, Corey and Stancliffe headed for Marie Birdland with the four dog teams on the 14th of October 
I didn't need to return to base due to adverse conditions or difficult surfaces, as was the case in the Austral Spring of 1929. Two days later, Blackburn led Russell and Payne with two dog teams, south in company with the seismic team comprising Morgan, Bramhall, Ronnie and Eilefson, also using two dog teams. Auxiliary power provided by manhauling, whether by carrying some of the load in backpacks or by harnessing up and joining the efforts of the dogs, featured in all early season sledging when the dogs were still finding their form and the sledges weighed the most. Herman and Moody carried south for the first day to get the requisite heroic footage, but I suspect anyone they asked to wear furs for the cameras advised them on where those furs might go, prompting some hard thinking about how long remained before the sun shone full for the 24 hour span at that latitude. June's Citroen returned from its 500-mile depot excursion to the Edsel Ford range on the 18th, with just a cup of oil remaining in the sump. Depots laid, ground control points for aviation surveys established, and the half-tracks demonstrated as a reliable workhorse in the conditions encountered at those latitudes at that time of year. The journey wasn't without Antarctic-imposed challenges. Crevasses, pressure ice fields, blown gaskets and blizzards all took their turns at slowing progress but hard-won experience honed individual and team competence, and June's party took it all in their methodical and pragmatic stride, June being a competent operator when not engaged in sly boozing or underhanded power games. Early into the return journey, Rawson stepped off the navigator's post on the last sledge during a stop, intending a quick word with June about a developing fault in the signalling system. Before he reached the driver's cab, June put the Citroen back in gear and headed off. Rawson couldn't make it back onto the sledge. Peterson, riding the sledge with him, couldn't make himself heard and couldn't reach the Citroen from that position. Fortunately, a failsafe practice prevented Rawson's hypothermic demise. Not receiving any signal for 15 minutes, June brought the Citroen to a stop to check on his colleagues and, getting the news from the horse Peterson, backtracked to collect Rawson. Nice work. A 28-hour stretch without stopping logged a distance of 159 miles, establishing a new terrestrial distance record in polar regions. The two southern geological parties required depots out to twice as far from Little America as Siples, and while the two other Citroens fell to the task, their effort required more relaying to sustain the sledges out to their furthest proposed extent. With Morgan's seismic equipment weighing 800 pounds on its own, the success of the southern parties hinged on how far south the Citroens could deliver their cargo. Even assuming no catastrophic mechanical breakdown, the fuel available to the southern teams, including that already depoted on the trail, only came to 1,500 gallons. Rescuing Bird cut deep into the efficiencies and trades Naville made through the winter dark. Given June's Citroen excursion to the east burnt through 45 gallons of fuel just running cookers and blowtorches, the distance the teams could make southward depended largely on how much backtracking the crevasse fields forced on them. As it played out, the Citroens performed magnificently, and the geological party under Blackburn likely could have made the pole and returned safely if they ignored their scientific imperative. On turning north, Inners Taylor's support team accepted any lame or weak dogs to ensure Blackburn and Morgan got the best haulers for the final extensions on their traverses. Sorry, 
On arriving back at Little America, Bird ordered Innes Taylor remain at the base, ensuring an experienced dog handler and more than five of the really dud dogs could remain on standby should an emergency among any of the trail parties require their assistance. The Curtis Condor received an overhaul of mechanical systems, but it was patching the snow shovel rents that really took time. Miller sewed fresh fabric over the holes, and this received the dope, a sickly sweet-smelling chemical that tightened as it cured, drawing the fabric patch tight across the repair and offering a sound surface against which the Bernoulli effect could take effect. Dope arrives in English from a Dutch word that originally served as a verb, to dip, but which later became the viscous liquid into which something was dipped. Then it applied to drugs because laudanum opium tincture was viscous enough to fit that bill. Then people got referred to as dopey when they acted as though they were doped up on dope. Aeroplane dope is a plasticised lacquer and at the time likely comprised nitrocellulose dissolved in a solvent base, making a viscous fluid. Because nitrocellulose is the high energy chemical that gives gun cotton its artillery propellant properties, it's highly flammable. Spectacularly so. It's also sickening to smell and gets you high as fuck if you're exposed to it for any extended span, though the effective dose is so close to the lethal dose that between that and the fire risk it's likely safer to play with opiates if you really want to get out of your scone. Aeroplane dope, whatever its formulation, doesn't cure when it's cold so the aviation team had to find a workaround to get the patched holes tight and watertight at sub-zero temperatures. On the upper surfaces, they erected a tent fabricated by Miller and kept the insides hot with blowtorches. Dangerous, but no one blew themselves to blazes with the rig, perhaps because the flames of the torches took care of any of the fumes before they reached an explosive atmosphere concentration. Underwing patches presented a different challenge. Miller made a long skirt the mechanics wore around their waist, while their colleagues tied the hem around the wing. They heated the space inside this inverse tent with a high wattage bulb and applied the dope, posing less danger of fire but leading to many a dry wretch as the fumes affected the man in the canvas bag. The William Horlick made a test flight on the 26th of October, just days after the sun began circling the horizon in its summer midnight sun act and the Pilgrim followed into the air shortly after. The geological and plateau parties reached an area of problematic crevasses at the end of the month, making progress with some difficulty. The Citrons following in their wake didn't fare so well, and radio contact between the two contingents mapped the fact that the dog teams must backtrack and travel east with the Citrons if the cargo brought south by the machines was to serve in carrying the science as far south as possible. Where the standard operating procedure required a driver gun their machine at full speed over a crevasse, during one crossing something told Hill, at the wheel of Citroen number 3, to hit the brakes as the awful sagging sensation overwhelmed his vehicle and the sound of thousands of tons of snow giving way roared out of the abyss at him. This saved the half-track and likely Hill and Waite's lives. When the cloud of ice crystals dissipated, the half-track lay diagonally across a large crevasse held up by one ski and the back end of the opposite track. By throwing blocks of ice onto a ledge some 10 feet below the Citroen, the team managed to bridge the crevasse and eventually built the bridge up to the point it supported the vehicle, at which point Hill drove it clear of the danger. Well played, that crowd of hard-as-nails trailblazers. And that's not sarcasm. I'm genuinely impressed by these guys.
Frustrated by the pace set by the slower half-tracks, Morgan and Bramhall wanted to push their dog teams onto the nearest mountains and get to work with the surveying and sampling, expecting the Citroen carrying the seismic equipment to catch them up. Poulter, dismayed at the prospect that this might lead to the abandonment of the seismic survey, a scientific big-ticket item that he held great hopes for, pushed Bird to order that the physicists stay with their equipment and get with the explosives mediated pinging as soon as possible. Bird didn't want to try to manage distant teams by radio. He writes of this as an instinct born of his own resentment at micromanagement by people off-site, but I think he may also have seen autonomy in the field parties as a means by which to divest himself of blame if anything went wrong. I doubt the same accounting of causal relationships would maintain if a field party found huge deposits of gold, but that's how management tends to work, much to my disgust. All of the credit, none of the blame. Nico Harbour, November 2019, large male leopard seal. Bird suggested a dog-citron split. Morgan and Bramhall would stay with the citrons, hauling seismic equipment to make the shelf and plateau ice depth measurements. Their dogs would join the teams running under Blackburn's leadership and those teams running under Ronnie and Eilifson would switch to solely providing support for Blackburn's geological party. Suggestions from your exalted leader are hard not to receive as orders, and Bird's plan went into operation. The two newly shuffled parties parting ways on the 6th of November. <coughs> to the north, Paul Seiple's Murray Birdland party entered the Edsel Ford range on the 10th of November. On the 11th, Poulter and Black began a seismic survey circling Little America using the spare seismic equipment brought south. Poulter finding the readings every bit as exciting as anticipated, the data clearly mapping the depth of the ice beneath their feet and the depth of water below that. On the 15th, Haynes announced the newly clear skies likely to remain so and that with the barometer steady it looked a good day for flying. Heating tents up, blowtorches lit and applied and the oil on the stove till the last minute, the aviation contingent got the William Horlick ready at the hurry-up. After a three-hour flight to measure cosmic rays at an altitude of 12,000 feet, June got the Condor refuelled and ready for a long-distance effort to the northeast to try to fill in blanks remaining on the chart of the Ross Sea coast and the mountainous hinterland beyond it. Bird wrote at length about the reasons he should not fly. Still weak from his poisoning at advanced base, Dr. Pataka advised against flying for the sake of keeping the cold, low atmospheric pressure taxed heart muscles from giving out. If the Condor made a forced landing and everyone aboard faced a long and gruelling walk back to Little America, Bird's physical condition would make him a burden on everyone else, needlessly putting lives at risk. He didn't mention his fear of flying, but, again, he seems to have weighed the merits of being aboard for any new discoveries as greater than the survival contingencies, and Bird took a seat in the Condor. On their way to the coast, the flight overflew a 100-mile-long, 50-mile-wide mound in the barrier, rising to 1,000 feet above the surrounding ice. Rather than flying near this prominence and triangulating its height with a sextant, Bird encouraged June to fly really close to its highest point and to read off the altitude, which is easier but leaves no room for even the merest sputter in the engines or a zephyr of a downdraft over the peak. Good aviators seek to keep their machine in the middle of the air, 
the edges of the air, denoted by small stones, large rocks, mountain goats and 100 mile long anomalies, are best avoided until absolutely necessary. The bird writes about the technique as though it was a really neat trick, marks him out as this episode's winner of the inaugural Ice Coffee Golden Black Box for mapping and maintaining the confident dullard end of the Dunning-Kruger phenomenon as it pertains to aviation. No rock showed through the snow, but the giant snowburn was identified as an island and named after President Roosevelt. The Condor reached Murray Birdland, heading for Mount Grace McKinley, leaving the barrier behind for the first time. Boland took the yoke and repeated June's brush the snow with the skis and read off the altitude trick to determine the plateau 100 miles behind the mountains as 3,200 feet above QNH, dialed in back at Little America. Have you ever watched a surveyor work their theodolite? One of the first things you notice about them is that they operate well below the stalling speed of their equipment. Many of them barely move at all as they make their readings. That's because taking measurements while ground truthing those measurements with the machinery currently comprising your life support while travelling at 100 knots is a bad idea. The reason we know all this happened is because the condor didn't smear itself and its fragile monkey contents all over the side of Antarctica, but it wasn't for want of trying. Exactly the sort of flight and life-ending engine splutters occurred as the condor passed high over Mount Grace McKinley. With 11,000 feet in hand, Boland had enough time to apply the fuel tank selector and prevent the engine in question cutting out entirely. The flight returned to Little America after passing over the wreckage of the Fokker Universal, left where the blizzard deposited it during the previous expedition, sparking the idea in Bird to salvage the engine and instruments so he could have two sets of each from broken Fokkers to take home and sell to offset the expedition costs. After backtracking out of the crevasse maze in which the dogs and the half-tracks parted ways, the Citroens headed east, but it wasn't long before Damas machine experienced the worst crevasse fall of the foray. The routine at any sign of the machinery heading subglacial was mostly a matter of every man for himself. Things happened too quickly for effective lifeboat drill, so the navigators abandoned sled with alacrity, while Damas watched the radiator on the rise until it blocked the sky from view the only agency he had left expressing itself in turning off the ignition to lessen his chance of burning to death before the cold could claim him. The Citroen came to rest above a much larger open space than previously encountered. The aircraft fuel tank bolted to the rear decking smashed and 40 gallons of gasoline poured out just to keep life interesting. This crevasse bowed outward below the machinery, nixing any chance of filling it in to the point the Citroen could simply drive out as before. Careful sounding with metal rods found a narrower, more thickly bridged gap, and Hill crossed safely in Citroen number 2, positioning the machine for an attempt at hauling its sibling from the moor of icy doom. The first attempt barely saw it budge, so they cut a hole in its canvas roof and unloaded it one item at a time, all while still balanced precariously over a deep hole that might swallow the machine and them at any moment. I'm sitting on the shores of Useful Island at low tide. Bunch of Gentoo penguins around. There's some chin straps on the far side. Starting to start their nests. Seals dotted here and there. Crab eaters, waddells and leopards. And snowy sheathbills eating the shit.
Marla, this is Matt. Go ahead. Just far enough. The safety tether applied to the stevedore doing the dangerous bit probably felt a bit perfunctory as they repeatedly entered the cargo space. The second attempt to haul the light and citron still didn't achieve anything. They dug away the lip of the crevasse and Damas, against the advice of his colleagues, climbed into the cab and started the engine. The newly dug slope, Citroen number two, and the traction provided by Damas flooring it when the tracks came in contact with the snow, finally saw the machine do the whole Lazarus deal. The party immediately established camp so Damas and Hill could overhaul the badly overtaxed engines and gearboxes of their charges. Bramhall taking advantage of the situation to take magnetic measurements while Morgan and Waite set seismic lines, which is some pretty hard case stuff. Setting off strings of explosives in a crevasse field would take larger quantities of gumption than most outdoor outfitters carry in stock at any one time these days. Writing that Damas and Hill spent two days overhauling the engine undersells the matter a bit. The machinery, tasked with a high torque task for days on end, was gradually wearing itself to pieces. Working on their bellies and heating each part in turn to get them loose enough to remove for repair or replacement constituted a brutal task endured for extended periods. I think it was during this period that Damas experienced a gasoline explosion that burnt off his eyebrows and eyelashes and left his face peeling even more than the sunburn and frost nips. Diesel now rules the Antarctic transport roost, but in the early 1930s, diesel technology still mostly focused on powering ships and large generators. Lightweight and reliable diesel engines were still a dreamt of future luxury, and nothing light and powerful enough to serve in a vehicle the size of the Citroen half-tracks existed yet. Working with diesel is far safer than working with gasoline because the higher flash point prevents the fuel vaporising and accumulating in poorly ventilated spaces to the point it reaches an explosive atmosphere. Diesel can burn and cause explosions, but it's harder to get it to that point accidentally, as happened to Damas with the gasoline. Damas was lucky to get away with superficial facial burns. Deep tissue burns and burning vapour inhalation both readily possible outcomes when dealing with gasoline vaporising in your workspace, would have killed him outright or left him incapacitated and in tremendous pain while he slowly died as his colleagues tried to get him back to Little America. Even the best equipped hospitals struggled to manage bad burns at the time. Medical understanding and treatment of burns have come a long way since then, and even so, burns remain among the most serious injuries people experience. If you must spend hours waving a blowtorch at an internal combustion engine, make it a diesel internal combustion engine. With the Citroens working at their high latitudes best once more, the party backtracked and hedged north to try to dodge the worst of the crevasses, which seemed to trend east and west. Ronnie and Eilifson split off from the geological party at a point in the consumption of fuel and food, at which point they changed from support to burden. The tracks of their passage south marked their path back to Little America, but with no radio and only a magnetic compass for navigation, should a blizzard obliterate the trail, Bird tasked June's second long-distance flight in the Condor with checking in on Ronnie and Eilifson. Bird sat the second flight out, perhaps applying the metric by which he ensured he was on hand for the big-ticket activities, while guarding himself against risk beyond that once more. 
Seeing the support party progressing well on their return journey, June flew on to find the Citrons. June could see the track carved by Damas and Hill's machines crossed many more crevasses than those on the ground ever knew about. June felt particularly impressed to see both half-tracks still at the surface after spying some of the holes the track led into and out of. Mapping the history of bridges collapsing under them or immediately after the violence of their passing. June flew reconnaissance and reported the safest route forward to wait, where safest is a relative term. Many crevasses still lying along the path that June identified. Another six and three quarter hours in the air for the Condor. Each long flight taxed the aircraft engines and the aviation team spent twice as many man hours overhauling the airframe as the airframe spent in the air. Bird sat out the third major flight too, though listening to the 15 minute updates as the aviators explored previously unseen territory, as opposed to checking in with field parties, rankled him more if his own writing is taken at face value. And I'm usually okay with doing that when someone is presenting something other than their best aspect. The flight returned to the Edsel Ford range and made a new easting into Marie Birdland, adding new peaks and mountain range trends to the growing body of geographic knowledge. The question of whether Antarctica comprised one or more land masses remained, but Marie Birdland clearly presented too large an area to constitute part of the archipelago some people thought lay to the east of the Ross Sea. Darkening skies forced an about turn and the William Horlick returned to Little America after seven and a half hours in the air. Long flights, given the discomfort flying in that era and at that latitude imposed, but never matching the span Bird spent aloft in the Floyd Bennett in 1930. On the 22nd of November, June flew south with some connecting rods parceled up and attached to a parachute, ready to make a drop to the half-tracks. Damas, having reported a dearth of spares and the likely necessity of abandonment of one of the machines, should any more connecting rods give out. Bird's book, Discovery, throws the sledges a literary pity bone about how they likely felt at their weeks-long slog being overtaken in a few hours by the Condor, and pontificates that while flying is faster, its risks are greater. The risks involved in flying at the time far outweigh those involved today, but for a man with no sledging experience to ride off months in harness out on the barrier and then in the mountains as a safe activity reads as another Dunning-Kruger moment for glorious leader. Perhaps he was correct and the minute-by-minute -minute risk was skewed against the aviators, but given they spent hours in the risk realm where the sledges spent months does a lot to redress any risk gap between the activities. The scars frostbite inflicted on the bodies of many Antarctic sledges go a long way to further illustrate the lack of merit in Bird's risk assessment. Bird called back a flight seeking to observe the final remaining gaps in the outline of the eastern side of the Ross Sea after he slept past the point June and Boland fired up the engines and took off. Rawson should have feigned radio trouble and left the Admiral behind. Bird never told anyone he felt well enough to fly, and Dr Pataka advised against joining the fly, but he got the Condor back on the ground and climbed aboard. Again, I don't understand why Bird, who had the final say in what Putnam published in Discovery, included this episode in his manuscript. Discovery. 
How to make yourself look like an incompetent micromanager in 5,000 easy steps. Landed near the Citrons on their way north, finding Damas and Co. in good fettle in spite of Damas's burns and the extensive litany of running repairs the half tracks required to date. The meeting offered Bramhall, Morgan, and Hill an opportunity to reconnoitre their future path, June taking them aloft and north for 20 miles, easing the uncertainty of picking a path through the crevasses and saving a lot of time likely otherwise spent in backtracking from impassable paths. On the 22nd, Eilifson and Ronnie arrived back at Little America after completing the 600 mile round trip in support of the geological and plateau parties. The return leg only took the duo nine days, light sledges, good dogs and good dog handlers eating up the distance, following the established trail through an extended period of fogs that kept the aircraft grounded. On their best day, their one team of 11 dogs covered 47 miles in 13 and a half hours. The final leg between Advanced Base and Little America, they covered in three days. For Thanksgiving, Damas and the Geological Party thawed a roast chicken out over a blowtorch, which sounds forlorn if you've ever enjoyed a good Thanksgiving dinner, but which served the need magnificently after a long spell on sledging rations. The following day, Blackburn, Payne and Russell reached the foot of their mountainous goal. On the 1st of December, the Citrons reached their plateau goal, while out east, Paul Seiple split his party up to cover more ground and collect more geological and snow samples. A magnetic storm nixed all radio communications for two days, but the parties were entirely autonomous at this point and didn't afash themselves about it. Dane started out south in the reserve Citron, intending to salvage advanced base, but the half-track's crankshaft shattered. Back at Little America, Innes Taylor couldn't find a spare, though he knew spare shafts came ashore. Paul Seiple's split team reunited and started for Little America, but their time in the field left them short on dog food. Seiple requested someone meet them with the meat at the 150 mile depot, and with the returning Citrons only 60 miles shy of that mark, the timing looked propitious for an exchange. Cyple could exchange food for his cargo of rock samples. 
fuel for the Citroens also reached critically low levels, and unless the aviators managed to get some drums to them, it looked likely Damas would abandon one of the vehicles. Damas wasn't keen on this prospect, as getting a lone Citroen out of the crevasses that likely lay ahead, likely lay beyond human ability. Ellsworth was back, operating from the other side of the continent and making noises about making his crossing once more. Bill Haynes estimated the chances of Ellsworth scoring the meteorological conditions necessary to complete the planned flight as 100 to 1. Not impossible, but not likely. On the 7th of December, June took Boland, Dawson, Pelter and Peterson aloft in the Condor again, this time intending a survey of Akuma Bay out east. Fifteen minutes after takeoff, the sky over Little America clouded over. While the Condor was still a quarter hour away from Akuma Bay, Bird gave the order to turn back, Haynes and Griminger prophesying increasingly poor visibility over the Bay of Wales. June had to vent 200 gallons of fuel to lighten the airframe sufficiently to land safely, a galling state of affairs for environmentalists now and for Noville and other stores-minded personnel then. The William Horlick touched down as the skies over the Bay of Wales began clearing. Making use of this, June flew a gasoline cache out to the 120-mile depot for the Citroens, McCormick acting as co-pilot in his first flight since recovering from his broken arm. Seeing the ground they traversed to the east of Little America from the air for the first time, June, Rawson and Peterson realised exactly how many caravan-swallowing crevasses they crossed, oblivious to the risks they ran while on the trail. Their track, still clearly visible from height, threaded the only possible gap through the worst of the territory by blind luck, their having deemed the entire expanse trustworthy. The horror they experienced at this airborne revelation made the rough landing on the Sestrugi near the depot a secondary concern. The snow at Little America began to melt in the growing summer heat, midday air temperatures occasionally exceeding zero degrees Celsius. The base huts leaked, prompting the residents to improvise gutters and drains with little noticeable effect on the growing moistness. Previously hidden middens came to ghastly light and roofs sagged as the weight of what was once crystalline and self-supporting slumped into a slurry of wet snow and meltwater. Anything of sufficient length suddenly became a pit prop, no matter how useful it proved in its previous incarnation. Tents erupted on the surface like particularly large and smelly mushrooms as little Americans sought refuge from the damp. The worst effect of the summer heat hit those sledges still out on the trail, the softening surface taxing the dogs even as the sledge weights fell away in the final stages of operations. Setting out to make a photographic visit to the Rockefellers, the William Horlick, carrying only a 5% fuel load and no cargo, couldn't slide across the snow surface fast enough to get airborne. Several attempts, each with the skis acting more as ploughs, never saw June achieve more than 45 knots and he gave the game away until some cold air and a headwind hardened the snow surface and lowered the speed over ground necessary to get airborne. On the 12th of December, Hill Citroen, number two, threw a connecting rod through the engine block, prompting its abandonment about 200 miles out, shortly after leaving the worst of the crevasse fields in their wake. Facing a big crevasse with only light bridging, Damas and Hill 
removed the governors from the engines of their steeds, tightened the tracks up and moved their vehicles onto a slope leading to the danger zone. Damas crossed first, foot to the floor and heart in his mouth. Hill followed in short order, but as his machine cleared the lip and reached safety, the engine began making a racket that let everyone know all was not well. Damas and Hill stripped anything light enough to carry from the stricken machine, maximising their chances of having the spares necessary to repair number three if something else went bunk, which it certainly would. Number two's bare chassis probably remains buried somewhere out in the barrier, slowly heading out to sea as the glaciers pushed down from behind. The same day, Blackburn radioed from 200 miles shy of the pole that his party was starting its return trek. Paul Seiple's Marie Birdland party were also on their way home, 200 miles east of Little America. Bird sent Dane, Swan and Moody and two dog teams out to the Rockefeller range to salvage what they could from the wreck of the Fokker Universal and to act as support for Seiple's team if the dog food ran too short. That a party started such a journey from winter quarters almost as an afterthought acts as a reminder of how good Bird's expedition members became at dog driving over the course of the two Bird Antarctic expeditions. In mid-December, Ike Schlossback, Johnny Vanderwall and Bob Young revealed their handiwork on the Fairchild Razorback. With its struts welded back together, wing ribs replaced and fabric patched, the airframe stood receiving blowtorch attention ahead of its first flight after five years buried in the snows. Schlossback made a test flight without a hiccup, and the resurrectionists flew over Little America almost every fine weather day thereafter, deservedly proud of their efforts at launching the first of many phoenixes to fly over Antarctica. On the 15th, the Condor made a long flight over King Edward VII land, aiming for the Scott Nun attacks and seeking, once more, to make first sightings of the coast running east, potentially photographing hundreds of miles of unseen geography. Akuma Bay, Scott Nun attacks, Salzburger Bay. Just as the Condor reached the edge of the known, layers of cloud forced June to climb. From 14,000 feet, cold and stupid with oxygen deprivation, the cloud only offered occasional tiny breaks through which to view the ground. 45 miles past the past record northeasting in that region, June and Bolden agreed that the black line obscuring the horizon and rising to an apparent 25,000 feet indicated they make their turn. The turn for home coincided with the fuel tank in use at that time running dry and both engines going quiet. 14,000 feet is a lot of height to turn into airspeed but it's also too high for rapid and coherent thought without supplemental oxygen, and it was several quiet minutes operating as a very heavy and unaerodynamic glider before the pilots got things noisy again. A good thing for all involved, as a dead stick landing through cloud over unknown Antarctic topography is likely hard on the knees, and everything else. On the 18th of December, Damas radioed that Citroen No. 3 needed a new camshaft follower after a breakage. He also requested new piston rings and the equipment and consumables necessary for some valve grinding as the cylinders were losing pressure and burning through fuel and oil at rates surpassing anything seen previously. Vanderwald gathered the spares, but poor weather precluded their being flown to Damas Party's relief. Ronnie and Black eventually carrying them by sledge instead. Departing on the 20th and making their delivery on the 30th. Damas and Hill had the Citroen back on task on New Year's Eve. The same day, Dane, 
Moody and Swan started back with their haul of Fokker salvage, and Boland and McCormick made the final attempt to fly over the coast east of King Edward VII land, again turning back in the face of dense cloud layers. Morgan split off from the Citrons, taking advantage of Ronnie and Black's dog team to make an excursion to the Rockefellers because geologists are going to geologize, and it takes a lot more than an ice-covered continent and months of privations on the trail to stop them. Paul Cycle's party arrived back at Little America after 77 days in the field and 860 miles traversed. The geology they examined comprised schists and granites, and Seipel and Corey discovered a remnant of a former volcano. The stratification and folding held consistent with that observed in Graham Land and the Andes. Paul Seipel's biological specimens included two dozen species of lichens and mosses, and ice from pools revealed a wealth of rotifers, tardigrades, and filamentous algae. Hardy taxa capable of holding onto the Gohan characteristics of life through many freeze-thaw cycles without experiencing ill effects. The bewilderment this wealth of biological material caused in the absence of land bridges linking Antarctica to other continents reminds us that Wegener's ideas about plate tectonics were still some decades away from serious contemplation. 1930s speculation about germ cells carried on rivers of upper air today read about as compelling as proposing these species arrived via a swallow, gripping them by the husk. Little America celebrated Christmas with a side of beef discovered in the previous expedition's meat cache, and a case of sherry, discovered by the substantial probing of the desperately dry and terminally optimistic. After almost a year of trying, using drills, pumps, pop fingers and dynamite in his attempts to take marine life samples from below the sea ice, Dr. Pelter finally got his plankton nets wet and collected a sample. The bear, refitted at a leisurely pace through the austral winter, departed Dunedin on the 1st of January 1935, once more under the command of Lieutenant English. US Postal Service Inspector Charles Anderson sailed the supernumerary to cancel the mail accumulated in Little America throughout 1934 becoming the first official USA government presence in Antarctica and the first sign of US government interest in the continent in just on a hundred years. The British ambassador to Washington DC requested clarification on whether this development constituted a territorial claim. Secretary of State Cordell Hull responded, under the modern model sovereignty required discovery and occupation and with no New Zealand government officials ever setting foot in the Ross dependency Claiming the territory based on British explorers having discovered a small part of the quadrant was a big call. So while he didn't call the postal gambit a territorial claim, he also made it clear the USA didn't recognise Commonwealth sovereignty over the area in question either. While passing through New Zealand, Charles Anderson helped calm the situation by stating that problems likely to arise in lubricating a franking machine in low temperatures would probably see him cancelling the mail aboard the ship. The Condor and the Fairchild Pilgrim made the final flights of the expedition in tandem, offering opportunities for excellent air-to-air -air photographs of the aircraft in flight, but little else. Citroen No. 3 arrived at Little America in the early hours of the 2nd of January. A broken valve put one cylinder out of commission entirely, and a connecting rod bearing was near the end of burning itself out. With no antifreeze left, Damas once more resorted to packing snow in the radiator every few minutes, also applying snow to the crankcase to keep the burning out bearing from causing its own heat-mediated excitement. Gasping and steaming, misshapen from fires and modifications, and top-heavy with an overburden of spare parts and remnant trail gear, 
The Frankenstein's half-track crept into camp, still under its own power, but clearly on its last legs. The Citroens weren't a perfect fit for Antarctic conditions, but they pulled their weight and went distances asked of them in a manner no previous mechanical transport managed. Only 20 years separated Anton Citron's design from Reginald Skelton's snow tractors, carried south by Scott, but that 20 years saw enormous advances in both the engineering of internal combustion engine driven machinery and the metallurgy applied to solving the challenges posed by the new designs. If Scott had Citrons and a couple of good mechanics, he could have made it to the pole and back. But since that's also true of Shackleton, Shirase, Filchner and perhaps even Borschgravink, that's not actually a big concept. Unlike the sledges, who returned bronzed, toned and clean, the mechanised party re-entered polite society covered in the oil and soot of their trade. On the 3rd of January, Little America buzzed with scuttlebutt. Ellsworth and Balkan were airborne. Ellsworth's radio operator requested Little America stand by for further news, and the New York Times requested any updates Bird could provide. Payne's Met report indicated against anyone trying to make Little America in the coming 24 hours, and this aligns with Balkan's actions, which we'll address in the tranche of episodes covering Ellsworth and Wilkins' collaboration in the South, the short version being Balkan aborted the flight due to adverse weather. Bird felt relief on learning of the Polar Star's return to its starting point. He wouldn't have to feign Virginian gentlemanly politeness to the grandstanding interloper after all. He tasked the Fairchild Pilgrim with picking up the aerial meteorological series interrupted by the crash of the autogyro and sent Damas, Skinner, Tingloff and Wade south to salvage advance base in an overhauled Citroen No. 1. The trek that knocked Damas back three times in the winter posed no great challenges in the temperatures and daylight of the summer. The same day, Dane, Moody and Swan arrived back from their Fokker salvage excursion. Then Morgan, Ronnie and Black arrived from Mount Rockefeller. Morgan, very pleased with the geological discoveries, made in his auxiliary excursion. On the 11th of February, Blackburn, Payne and Russell arrived back from almost three months on the trail and a journey of 1,400 nautical miles that reached further into the geography than even the longest of the Condor's flights. Fossils and coal seams, the usual stuff Antarctic geologists got excited about, formed the highlights of their trip, but the amazing thing was finding these features just 200 miles shy of the pole. Presently up at the hangar, Whalers Bay, Deception Island, staying out of the wind. He tasked the Fairchild Pilgrim with picking up the aerial meteorological series interrupted by the crash of the autogyro, and sent Damas, Skinner, Tingloff and Wade south to salvage advance base in an overhauled Citroen No. 1. The trek that knocked Polter back three times in the winter posed no great challenges in the temperatures and daylight of the summer. The same day, Dane, Moody and Swan arrived back from their Fokker salvage excursion. Then Morgan, Ronnie and Black arrived from Mount Rockefeller, Morgan very pleased with the geological discoveries made in his auxiliary excursion. On the 11th of February, Blackburn, Payne and Russell arrived back from almost three months on the trail and a journey of 1,400 nautical miles 
that reached further into the geography than even the longest of the Condor's flights. Fossils, coal seams, the usual stuff Antarctic geologists got excited about, formed the highlights of their trip, but the amazing thing was finding these features just 200 miles shy of the pole, where everyone else predicted nothing but snow and ice. Blackburn's team did discuss pushing onto the pole for the novelty of it, but put the science ahead of such fancies. Lichens on rocks at 86 degrees south constituted the furthest south record for life on the planet. Russell stated that should they ever write a memoir of the trek, wind must serve as the only possible title. Once past advanced base, they never felt anything less than 20 knots and estimated the mode as 40. Regular blizzards took it into hurricane speed range and dogs and men suffered its vagaries stoically, not indifferent to its effects, but unable to do anything about those effects without abandoning the mission. The trio surmounted numerous challenges that set previous expeditioners on their asses. A 60-foot crevasse swallowed their sledges, so they spent seven hours lowering each other on alpine ropes to send the cargo up piecemeal until the load grew light enough to pull back to the surface. Several of their dogs collapsed in their traces, receiving a mercy bullet before the drivers rearranged their team's pulling order. They laboriously crossed an expanse of blue glare ice on which neither dogs nor humans could gain purchase. The men donned crampons, but the dogs scrabbled on the slick surface, the constant headwind regularly spinning them about face. Fifteen miles of that nonsense, and uphill to boot. Glare ice describes any smooth, glassy surfaced ice. In glacial systems, it can be formed when ice gets compressed by the weight of lots of glacier above it, to the point any air entrained back when it was snow no longer shows. Ablation of snow and fern can then expose this hard layer as the glacier's aspect changes in the course of its continental traverse. Glare ice is the surface with the least friction I've ever encountered. It makes Teflon feel like asphalt, and astragalide feel like honey. You only have to look at this stuff and you're on your ass with no sensation of falling or passage of time between you standing up and you lying horizontally with a headache. A colleague once scabbed a ride in a Bell 212 helicopter up a glacier. On landing, he stepped off the ski onto glare ice and smashed several thousand dollars worth of bone dome aviator's helmet as his buff head came to earth with all the newtons of 12 kilograms of monkey bits accelerating at 9.8 meters per second per second for a metre and a half. The chopper crew could have saved themselves some bucks and everyone else who ever encountered that man a lot of trouble had they omitted to give him the headgear. Bird gets me grumpy and I revisit memories of people in my life who shared his selfish ability to disregard the well-being of others at a scale that, if people weren't getting fucked over in their wake, might warrant the label heroic. Almost as surprising as the lichens, a pair of skewers crossed their path about 240 miles from the pole, placing them 450 miles from the nearest coast. Clearly hungry, for obvious reasons, the skewers landed near the dogs which went berserk at the sight and smell and sound of fresh food. The tethered dogs couldn't reach them, but they weren't the only hungry mammals keen on a change of diet. Russell and Payne biffed rocks at the birds, but couldn't nail their target before the skewers fucked off again. With 450 pounds of geological specimens on the sledge, the party took advantage of the constant wind on their return journey, 
fashioning a sail from a torn tent and bamboo poles. Blackburn figuring it provided the power of an additional two dogs for much of the trek. The bear entered the Ross Sea on the 13th of January, making a sounding transit from the Victoria Land coast and heading east, taking 12 full oceanographic stations along the way. On January 15th, Damas arrived back at Little America with the advanced base shack sections and the resurrected Klee track, itself towing the Ford snowmobile left where it pegged out on the trail five years prior. The same day, the Rippert departed Dunedin with Commander Geertsen in command outright after Captain Verlage's sacking. Neville and Corey put their teams to task dismantling Little America and getting the components packaged and ready for loading. They tore out the tunnel roofs to give the stevedores the shortest and simplest route to getting everything topside. Already well soggy with meltwater, Little America became even less weatherproof as the gutting progressed. The hard yards loading sledges for towing by the clapped out vehicles and the refreshed dogs commenced. The bear reached Discovery Bay on the 18th, collecting Poulter, Moody and Black from their seismic foray and pressed on to the Bay of Wales the following day. Inner's Taylor met the ship at the ice edge and raced the mail back to Little America, but once everyone realised the ship lay alongside, they headed to the shore to see that most remarkable sight, their path home. Some new faces were a welcome change too. Freshies. New Zealand apples handed around as though made of fine china. Pork chops from Tony's galley. The ship brought much and promised more, passage away from Little America. Tractors hauled cargo to a cache from which dog teams took the load out to the ship, but with so much of the original 500 tonnes either consumed or staying at Little America, the Misery Trail comprised a less daunting effort than on arrival. Regular shifts among the ice saw the ship pushed out and heaved to until conditions settled, but that's just part of working on a working ice edge, and came as a surprise to no one at this point. The Rippet arrived on the 26th, using its radio direction finder to home in on the bear through the dense snowstorm that saw both ships steaming around the bay, unable to moor up for almost a week, dampening the previous sense of optimism the prospect of heading away inspired in the locals. Captain English began transferring cargo to the Rupert to spare the steel-hulled ship some of the risks associated with tying up to unstable ice, the bear's wooden hull being better able to flex and rebound when pressed. In still weather on the 2nd of February, the Klee track towed the Ford Trimotor and the Fairchild Pilgrim to the ice edge. The Curtis Condor and the recently restored Fairchild Razorback taxied out to the ship under their own power. Haynes and Griminger dismantled their meteorological instruments, and Bramhall and Zoon packed the magnetic equipment in its crates. Dyer's team dismantled and packed the radio sets and the associated power plant. On February the 3rd, the Rippet came alongside to crane the heavy gear. The aircraft, machine shop machinery, generators and cows. Innes Taylor coordinated the boarding of the dog teams and the Rippet sprung off the shore and stood off in the Bay of Wales while the bear nosed back in for the final few loads. A final Citroen visit took Bird to his Antarctic township to lower the flag, collect his personal belongings and pick up the last of the clear-out crew. Bird wrote that leaving Little America dishevelled, its tunnels stove in, the remaining stores disorganised, 
and littered with miscellaneous debris fit to bewilder even the best future archaeologist didn't sit well with his sense of naval order. I don't think it's surprising though. I've visited several decommissioned military installations, including bases abandoned by the US Navy, and the story is the same. I think it's the scale, and not whether a place is military or civilian, that determines how tidy someone leaves it when departing on a fixed schedule. Lundstrom left Framheim tidy and ready for guests unlikely to ever arrive because he could. Framheim's size allowed that. Any large facility, particularly one built up over several years, can't unfabricate itself without substantial allocation of time and energy, which translates into money. You see the same pattern repeat in former whaling stations, research stations, farms and even cities. People walk away with what they value and leave the pottery shards and middens for future civilizations to value. The only reason the Antarctic Heritage Trust has anything to preserve is the expeditions of the past were too cheap or short on time to dismantle and remove the materials they spent so much money carrying south, and since Greenpeace showed everyone how winter quarters can be erected, lived in and removed, there's far less litter and physical history being left behind in Antarctica per unit of effort of research and adventure than previously. I'm actually a little surprised that Little America didn't accidentally catch fire at this point. I'm pretty sure Bird didn't intend returning to it, and given his response to Lawrence Gould's 1931 proposition that he might lead an expedition there, combined with the future possibility of Lincoln Ellsworth making use of the remnants, a mystery fire that gutted the main buildings would, at this point, hold no surprise for me at all. The precaution of building the main facilities far enough apart that fire in one hut wouldn't destroy all of them would have required several simultaneous mystery fires breaking out, and that might explain why none did. The final Citroen, too heavy for the bear's crane, drove itself aboard when the tide helped the barrier edge align with a cradle built on deck to hold the machine during the voyage north. On the 7th of January, the bear paused in Discovery Bay to collect 20 live emperor penguins, some of the mounted skins of which I recently visited at the Field Museum in Chicago, and both ships set course for Dunedin. The bear, slower and still carrying out Roo's sounding and oceanography program, fell behind but the largest wintering party in Antarctic history headed north with all hands. President Roosevelt met his newly gaunt friend at the wharf as the Rupert reached Washington Navy Yard, but the austerity of the era precluded another ticker tape parade. To try to tame the expedition debts, Admiral Byrd began work on the manuscript that became Discovery immediately. Paramount consulted him for the editing and narration of the footage returned by Hammond and Peterson also published under the title Discovery. Bird spent six months lecturing about the expedition, still not fully recovered from his debilitating ordeal on the barrier. Audiences remained keen to hear Bird speak in spite of the sustained effects of the depression, and a second lecture tour carried into 1937. Estimates of the earning from Bird's speaking running to 200,000 mid-1930s dollars. IBM CEO Thomas Watson, noted sucker-up to history's worst sociopaths and expedition donor to the tune of $20,000, that outshone any ticker tape parade in its flattery and pomp. Industrial titans, politicians, wealthy oligarchs and their sprogs attended the lavish do at which Byrd announced he was done with polar exploration and would turn his attention and energy to bringing about world peace. 
problems of Japan in Manchuria and a resurgent Germany helmed by National Socialism solved, once and for all. A bang on about not liking Bird much and lamenting the harm he did to other people's careers. But he got shit done on a scale few other people could achieve on a civilian volunteer footing. And while I think the motive behind his looking to the safety of those under his leadership had more to do with protecting his reputation than it did with minimising human suffering, the upshot is the same either way. No one died on his expeditions. Although the scientific findings of this second Antarctic expedition exceeded and received wider publication in the scientific literature than those of the first outing, Bird's second Antarctic winter didn't do much for his reputation. No big goals kicked, and the nearest thing to a big goal nearly killed him, resulting in an ignominious rescue that risked the lives of the three men who came to his aid, a rescue that split the wintering party's leadership loyalties in half. If Richard Bird quit exploration at the start of the 1930s, he wouldn't cut such a hapless figure as he now appears. He got a lot done and could have left it at that, but he continued to return to the coalface of past glories for no great gains. In making himself the mayor of Antarctica, he forced his hand into repeating his past and resenting anyone who went south to do anything he didn't sanction. Bird is rightly remembered as a figure of the 1920s, even though he lived until and remained active into the late 1950s, because the 1920s was when he tried to cast himself as an all-American icon. He succeeded, but in doing so, he also trapped himself in that mould, the minds and imaginations of his countrymen thinking of him as Bird of the 1920s, as much as they thought of him as Bird of Antarctica. So, what did Bird's second Antarctic expedition give us? Geographically, it put paid to the idea of a large open strait separating East and West Antarctica. An archipelago of large islands in a strait remained a possibility, but the idea of a significant and unimpeded water body was dead. 400,000 square miles of Antarctic territory was photographed from the air, and while Bird's field teams didn't establish ground control points for all of that territory, it was a big leap forward in terms of seeing the previously unseen. Geologically, it found fossils further south than any previous work, and established the trend and nature of several mountain ranges, some entirely new to human experience, and some previously only glimpsed in the distance. Coal seams seemed a promising find, but as you'll likely know, no one has mined, and no one is mining Antarctica, yet. And hopefully the days of new coal mines are numbered. Even if people do overturn the treaty and start digging below the circle. Piedmont Island, late November. Sun shining, still conditions, Gen 2 penguins. Santi, Yvonne and Manda are uphill setting a trail. Some gentoos coming in, porpoising as they go. And it's all going down nice. Long transits using sonar sounding equipment mapped the seafloor the ships passed over to an extent previous expeditions to the Ross Sea couldn't dream of matching, even with a Lucas sounding machine. The first seismic soundings in Antarctica began to unravel the mysteries of the Ross Ice Shelf and its surrounding glaciers. Poulter's Meteor Observatory found far more space rock entering our atmosphere than anyone previously suspected, and his observations, when cross-referenced with concurrent measurements elsewhere, marked the start of our present understanding of meteor frequency 
and global distribution. Bacteriological lichen and moss samples catalogued life further south than previously examined. The largest overwinter party to date survived with only widespread toastiness and a recovering case of carbon monoxide poisoning as the immediate human cost. In 1939, Professor Poulter published an overarching report on the scientific findings covering oceanography, geology, cosmic ray studies, glaciology, ornithology, astronomy, meteorology, magnetism and geophysics. While Bird continued to try to assuage his Commonwealth critics that he only asserted personal territorial claims over areas lying to the east of the Ross Dependency, he happily allowed his countrymen to espouse that the expedition added hundreds of thousands of square miles of territory to the US Aegis. And Bird worked out what happens if you put a single egomaniac on their own in a small box in the cold and dark and blow carbon monoxide in their face for four months. Critical new knowledge for the whole of humanity right there. To quote Bird in Discovery, It has always been my first principle in my ABCs of field operations, never to leave where it could be avoided. The success of a pioneering party dependent on a single doubtful circumstance. Where a purely scientific party has an alternative, say, between a spectacular objective with a large risk and a less spectacular but equally valid objective with a smaller risk, it seems to me that the latter is the right choice. Unquote. And also, quote, Greediness is a fatal quality in the polar regions. Unquote. Even 90 years after the fool put pen to paper to spout that disingenuous bollocks, I find the hypocrisy annoying. Either Bird was comfortable with his double standards and thought no one would ever see through his facade of fatherly concern for his men and devotion to furthering human knowledge, or he was one of the least self-aware authors whose output it's been my misfortune to read as assiduously as I have. And even there, I've cut corners where I could, so deeply galling do I find his ghost-written love letters to himself. There's not many Antarctic expedition leaders recounted in this series I would feel comfortable heading south with, knowing what I now know about them. But Bird stands apart from all others, with perhaps the exception of Amundsen, as the person I would kill and eat long before getting hungry enough to necessitate cannibalism. One thing Bird got correct in Discovery reads, Scientists will still be grubbing about in the Antarctic long after all of us are dead. Anthony Powell is likely best known to ice coffee listeners for his documentary Antarctica A Year on Ice, featuring spectacular imagery generated over many years at McMurdo Station and Scott Base. The work that took Anthony South centred on maintaining electrical and electronic monitoring and transmitting equipment. With Courtauld in Greenland and Bird in Antarctica, comprising monkey-based monitoring and transmission equipment, I asked Anthony how much it would cost to replace monkey-based systems with present-day weatherproofed automation. Turns out, the entire effort of Bolling Advanced Base would cost about $2,000 to automate and return more reliable results for longer, and wouldn't put anyone's safety at risk. And the automated system wouldn't write a cloying ode to self-pity that borderline morons regularly cite as a classic of Antarctic literature. So it works out cheaper, less dangerous, and better for the literary mean of the world that we automate big egos out of the workspace entirely. There's more Antarctica available for your ears this month with Antarcticast by Michael Kluger, 
coming on my radar in the final weeks of August. Greetings this episode to Brian, who I've mentioned several times in the series already, but who is slated to join me in about five days in Antarctica for the first time, and I don't know which of the two of us is more excited about it. Take care and appreciate you.